The Dance of Gods, Book One, Spell of Catastrophe, written and read by Mayor Alan Brenner. Chapter 19, The Castle of Death. The building began to quiver, the rooftop vibrating up and down underfoot in a staccato drumming pound that grew louder and stronger with great speed. Max had wrapped his arms around the railing and had planted a firm stance on the floor, anticipating the shaking and not wanting to be distracted from the spectacle if he could help it. If he was going to die, he was going to die, but either way it was going to be quite a show. The wave hit the wharves, already traveling faster than the gallop of a seasoned horse, a vast dark form alight with the glow of foam and the trapped reflection of firelight from the city, lifting far above the warehouses, higher than Max's vantage point, higher than anything else in Rusingalvaya, eight, nine stories tall, potentially ten or even more. It plowed through the mass of packed ships and straight across the wharves without a hesitation, carrying barges and tall-masted river schooners and keelboats and dock pilings together into its thundering wall, as if they were all merely sailing into a bank of thick mist. The top of the wave, now racing slightly ahead of the main body, had formed a solid mass of whipping foam cascading forward as a tube. Then the wave's leading edge swept up past the base of the wars into the line of violet on top of the seawall. Rusingovaya's flood barrier had locked into its full-strength configuration as a dense violet web spun like extended fishnets along the riverfront. Suspension cables woven through its matrix bound the web to pilings of a deeper glowing purple that rose up every fifteen feet out of the seawall, making the whole assembly resemble a bridge slung on its side. The pilings were buttressed from behind by long, thick struts driven solidly into the foundation rock. It was a durable and resilient barrier indeed. Of course, the floods it had been designed for generally rose slowly and not in a single crashing surge, and since the highest flood tide ever recorded in Rusingalvaya had only reached a level of two stories, the barrier had been extended upward to a generous height of three. The expanding circle of the wave plowed into the long barrier net ten blocks south of Max, and spread immediately north and south from there in a fast rolling tower of exploding spray. Max could feel the power of the secondaries kick in as the web snapped tight against the incredible hurled force of the water. The net stiffened, strained, stretched, bowing backward to try to take up the shock. Sections began to yield as the supporting columns ripped free from their underpinnings or simply snapped clear through at the roots and at a spot twenty blocks south, and then another five blocks north, the overstressed web parted completely, letting the wave rush clean through the shredded breaches. The tall crest of the wave poured over the top of the barrier as spillage over a dam, and rushed ahead into the streets. But the greatest mass of the wave was at its base, and its greatest force as well, and against this the barrier was doing its job, holding back, fending off, retarding the internal phase synchronization, reflecting the resonance of the water back into itself and rearward into the river, so that in the half-second of delay the wave had its bottom cut out from under it and spread out backward, converting the single towering mound of water into a surge that was indeed still tall, still mighty, still crushing, but now more elongated and dampened, with much of its grandest energies spent. The ground lurched violently as the ground-borne shock waves passed them, jerking the rooftop perch forward and back in a continuous quaking spasm. A building a few blocks straight in front of Mac toppled into its neighbor, and both spun together out of sight. 
Off to the side, other buildings were falling, too, as the boom and crash of the approaching water beat against the ears. A repeating whoosh-whoom, whoosh-whoom sound suddenly explained itself as a manhole cover rocketed into sight at the top of a geyser spout, propelled by the pressure of the bore of water bashing through the sewer under the street. Whoosh! The water jetted on through the sewer channel. Whoom! The next access cover streaked up into the air at the head of another fountain column. Then the ear-filling rolling bellow seemed impossibly to double in its force, and the wave burst around the corner in front of them. Three stories tall and capped by a fierce mound of glimmering foam, its churning face thick with tumbling wood and pieces of rock, and there for an instant and just as quickly gone, the complete hull of a small boat, the wave came roaring down the street, toward Max, its angry top just below his line of sight, around him, in a sheet of thrown spray thick as a sudden cloudburst, smashing through the building, the giant creak and hop and stagger that knocked Max back against the railing and spun him to his knees, and miraculously passed, flotsam spinning in its wake and the level of the floodwater slowly subsiding. Spume made looping patterns in the slack behind the crest. I charged back up the hill through the howling wind, looking for this Shah person. Between Gash and Oskinyale and now Max, I was wishing I'd picked up something safe and simple when I was a kid, like glass-blowing, maybe, rather than a sword and a curious mind. At least Max was gone for the moment, and Oskinyale seemed gone permanently, and Gash was keeping quiet wherever he was. A big shock knocked me to the ground with the sound of a giant bell. I rolled, got up again, rounded a corner, and found myself down the block from Oskinyale's flaming temple. All the guardsmen who could move had long since scattered, leaving a few huddled shapes behind them on the street. Flames had made the leap to a building on the next block downwind, and to another one a block or two further on as well. Fires didn't bother me at the moment. I figured that that castle dropping into the river was going to send up a splash big enough to put out a volcano. I was looking for a beacon, Max had said. I trotted up the street, glancing around. Just past the glow of the Yale fire, I spotted it. The buildings flanking the alley where I'd stashed Carl Lake had partially collapsed. I didn't see Carl, but I did see the body of a man lying on the ground in the street just across from the alley entrance. The form was covered by a whitish-yellow glow clinging to its contours. More of the glow made a half-dome shape in the air over him, starting at his head and popping over in a low arch to end barely beyond his feet. The man inside had his eyes closed and was breathing with some distress through his open mouth. I recognized him. He was the same guy I'd seen being held prisoner by Askinyali's guards when I'd bluffed my own way through with my imitation of Gashana Tantra. "'Are you Shah?' I said to the man. One eyelid creaked open, and the eye rolled up and found me. "'Zalzain Shah,' he said in a low voice that merged into a wet cough. Though only marginally, he managed to continue, at your service. Your friend Max sent me to find you. Ah, Shah said, then please help me prop myself against that wall. What about this glowing thing? I hadn't wanted to touch it. I'd had enough with magic already to last another ten years, especially magic I didn't know anything about. Don't worry about the field, said Shah. It won't bite. It was a gift of sorts. If you say so, I muttered. I stowed the sword Monarch without complaint on its part, got my better arm underneath Shah's back, feeling nothing more than a mild tingling as I slid it through the glowing dome, and dragged him through the mounting ground tremors over to the building. 
When I stood up, the prickling feeling was still there in my arm. Beneath the tingle, though, my hand, which had gotten a lot of punishment in the last few hours, was feeling surprisingly better. Is this thing some kind of healer, I said, flexing my grip? Unfortunately, my system is resistant to curative spells, Shah said. He sounded a lot better sitting up. The field seems to be more along the line of an energy transfuser in addition to its attribute of attracting searchers to the vicinity. He coughed and spit up fluid. Just what is going on down there, where you came from? The wind had died away while we were talking. I couldn't see the flying castle from our location, but from the roaring and general pandemonium coming from the direction of the river and drawing closer fast, I could make a pretty fair guess. This big castle popped up over the river and dropped in. I think we're hearing the sound of the wave coming after us now. Hmm, said Shah. Fortuitously, we are on a hill. I assume the mad god summoned this castle? Mad god, death, yeah, I guess so. That's what Max figured. And he proposes to deal with it himself? He did seem to have that idea, I said. It was pretty testy at the time we met, or I might have been able to talk to him more about it. Indeed. I take it you are not actually Gashana Tantra. Gash? Oh, right, he'd seen my entrance at Askinyale's. It's kind of a long story. I propose we let stories wait until after the wave, Shah said. And he was right, because sure enough the wave was in the process of showing up. The street rumbled like a herd of giant buffalo were pounding up it. A cloud of spray and mist erupted out of the Yale fire, and the heart of the fire withered into steam. Fountains of water shot straight up out of the sewer covers, and then around the corner and up the street came the wave itself. It looked like most of its force had already been spent on the lower sections of the city, but it still had enough momentum to spill up the hillside and wash gently over the two of us there at the top, leaving debris scattered behind it on the street. I held Shaw out of the surf as the top of the water tugged at my knees. Things must be pretty bad down there, I said. What remarkable insight, Shaw muttered. I was about to say something else when I heard a sudden spasm of coughing and splashing behind us in the alley. Oh, I said, Carl. The water was ebbing. I dropped Shaw back against the wall and bounded over him. A shape was flopping like a long carp tangled in a mound of debris ten feet into the alley. I splashed through and fished it out. It was indeed Carl Lake. When Carl had finished coughing up enough water to go back to breathing, he looked up at me. Thank you, Carl said, unless you have merely returned to finish your job. I did what I had to do, and you know it. Carl coughed again, glaring up at me. May I join you, he said to Shah. It is a long wall, Shah said. Carl plopped himself down next to me. My head is in extreme pain, he said to me in an accusing tone. Maybe we're even then. Hmm, said Carl. He looked across the street at the wreckage of the temple. What was left of the water on the street was now mostly foam. The reason for our conflict has passed with the passing of Oskin Yale, yes? Yeah, I said, I guess so, but... I must interrupt, Shaw said. I regret the necessity of my own inaction when there are important things to do, yet you, who are not really Gishana Tantra, on the other hand, have no such excuse. What? I said. Shaw raised one eyebrow. Primus, for you to pass yourself off as Gishana Tantra before Askin Yale, you must have a high level of effective power. Secundus, your quite interesting aura, supports this thesis. Tertius, and higher, 
since from my reading of the situation you probably had a lot to do with that situation in the first place, you know full well where Max is going and what he's going to try to do, and you can further figure out that he will need all the help he can get. Now, are you the man of action you appear, or merely a worn-down counterfeit? Max told me to stay here with you. He said if anything happened to you, he'd... Your solicitude is warming, Shah said sarcastically. I am thankfully in better shape than Maximilian feared. At least I am not acutely dying. Under the circumstances, your friend Carl and I can protect each other for the time being. Shah cocked his eyebrow at Carl. Carl nodded. Protect, that is, considering that with a mad god on the loose, Rusinovaya itself may not be here much longer. I didn't like being a pawn, but on the other hand, the situation was what it was. At the moment, their plot was more urgent than mine. All right, I said, I'm going. But if your friend Max tries to wipe me into the landscape, somebody's going to pay. Don't worry, Shaw said, closing his eyes. Whatever happens, someone always pays. The mass of the castle rose sheer from the dark river deep in the heart of the current. Waves still reflected back from shore to shore, ruined wharf front to castle stone. The waves were still tall, but no longer monsters. Ice sheathed the base of the castle, sparkling strokes of flash-frozen spray cast up from the breaking river swells, leaving their crisscrossing tendrils far up the walls. The castle shuddered and eased itself a few feet further into the muck. A large cake of frost peeled off the north wall and fell back toward the water, the high plumes from the splashes immediately freezing again against the supercooled stone. Each avalanche of tumbling icicles cast its own ghost-like streamers up on the towers as it dropped, cold, transparent refractions of flickering green and blue, and the crackling of the ice and the pound of the turbulent river and the massive fidgeting of the castle and the cries from the city made a huge rolling groan that rose up into the sky. The castle had stopped its rotation as it settled into the riverbed. It rested now at a slight angle off the perfectly level, with perhaps a fifteen-degree inclination out toward the wharves. Sourceless lights had appeared behind walls and deep within the towers, red and blue and purple, illuminating various details of the castle, backlighting a jagged crenellation here, the curve of a cylindrical spire there, the span of a free-flying arch high up on a downstream pinnacle. As if the mere presence of the castle was not strange enough, part of its structure was indeed still in motion. A small cylindrical tower, capped by a peaked tile roof, jutted out from the side of another taller tower, with a vantage point out over the water and down past the curtain wall. Rather than being attached firmly together after the immutable fashion of stone, though, the smaller tower was pivoting against the larger one, swinging back, down, and out to the side, swooping forward at the bottom of its arc to point downward at a dizzyingly acute angle, then barely scraping past the large tower again at the top of its path, rotating back, out, around. In fact, as Max looked closer, it became apparent that the rotating tower was even stranger yet. Two windows were visible on the small tower, lit from within, and the light also cast into relief the network of stones on the surface. Once you had accepted the fact that the tower actually was moving, solid stone against solid stone, with no sign of a mechanism in evidence, one would expect the lighted windows and the tracery of stone cracks to be moving along with it. Instead, the windows were maintaining their same orientation, upright with respect to the larger tower, one facing directly toward Max and the other mostly edge-on, 
but the rotation was making the surface of the tower and the window and the stone stretch and flow as the shape inside swept around. It was as though the stone surface was artfully sculpted on a large flexible balloon, and this balloon was faithfully matching the excursions of a rigid framework turning within. The tallest tower of all sprang out of the central cluster of spires and halls and coiled roofs and shot straight up into the night sky. That tower, if Max remembered correctly, was the one where Carlini had experienced his second visitation, when he had stumbled on the office of the death and had seen a vision of the death being attacked. A glowing red smoke ring surrounded the tower just below its pointed roof. Within the ring, a ball of more intense and churning red was following a slow orbit above the stone. On each pass, it left behind it a crackling red trail that hung in the air and slowly decayed, almost fading to a wisp before the ball of flame came around on its next trip and brought it again to life. The fireball was merely sitting there, tracking its way deliberately around, and that was more worrying than almost anything else. It could mean that the death was getting itself together and quieting down. On the other hand, it could also mean that the death was gathering its strength for a supreme gasp of nastiness. Either way, the safe thing to do was encapsulate the death and reason with it later, but for that to be possible, the thing that had to be done first was to bleed off the death's power reserves. And that, Max thought disgustedly to himself, is going to need proximity. The floodwater had dropped below the two-story mark, and was still falling as it ebbed back toward the river. Bodies spun past in a tangle of brush, its staring face upward. Hopefully the citywide toll was low, with the warning given by the flamboyant nature of the manifestation, people should have had time to get to upper floors. Even so, buildings had collapsed, and other people had undoubtedly been caught in the streets, not to mention the destruction of the ships and boats. The result was sure to be grievous, if not totally catastrophic. If the castle stayed where it was, though, river transit might ultimately be ruined and the economy of the city destroyed. It was certainly time for Max to get going. The most feasible route was, again, the water. Leaving the other occupants of the roof still staring open-mouthed at the spectacle that surrounded them, Max slid down his cord toward the water, then balanced himself temporarily against a beam. The ebbing tide was choked with fractured wood, carriages and carts and wagons, chairs and assorted small furniture, pots, shrubs, and, yes, here and there a body. Quite surprisingly, though, Max had managed to retain his backpack, due, no doubt, to the reinforced construction of the straps, and in the pack was his face mask and breathing tube. Most of his water-resistant outfit had been shredded, but at this stage that was beside the point. Max fitted the mask into place, shook loose the cable, eased himself into the water, pointed himself toward the river, and began a careful crawl stroke. He swam with the current. Landmarks were difficult to make out, but the most important landmarks would be the river and the castle. Those would be difficult to miss. People were beginning to rouse themselves in the buildings around him, relighting lamps, pulling others out of the water. Max rounded a corner. The street ahead of him was covered by mounds of floating lumber, from pieces the size of matchsticks all the way up to full structural beams and intact fragments of floor, twirling and shifting together in the water. One wall of a building protruded above the surface, a jagged platform of floor still attached to it five feet up. Several people had gathered there and were shining a lantern on the water below. Beyond the wall and the tangled wood fragments, looming like a square-edged leviathan with its back barely awash, sat a riverfront warehouse, 
pushed off its foundation and carried as a battering ram through several built-up blocks. Max made his way past its crushed front and along a sidewall that was fairly much unbroken. Behind the warehouse, swept clean by its own plowing mass, a channel stretched clear and straight to the river. The current was more definite here, although the swells and smaller waves washing back from the river into the city were becoming more pronounced. Max swam ahead along the channel. A flickering source of purple light approached on his right. Then, lifted by a wave, Max saw a crackling shaft of lacy violet about ten feet long hanging just above the water, rolling absently with the swells, a piece of a flood barrier matrix. He passed it with a deliberate distance to spare. The shredded remains of the rest of the flood barrier webs slipped by underneath, then a ragged section of wharf. Max pulled up, treading water, raised his head above the surface, and pursed his lips in thought. The half-moon rising now in silhouette beyond it was the Castle of the Death. The rock groundwork and most of the outer walls had sunk beneath the water, and of course the main entrance as well. Since the side of the castle facing Rusing Ulvaya was the one canted over at an angle, the crenellated top of the curtain wall was only ten feet above the water level, though enough for the larger waves to ride completely over it. Max lifted his hand into the air and tentatively sketched a string of compact characters. He hadn't tried this before, but the principle was well-founded. There was no reason it shouldn't work. The characters flowed together, melting and merging, and wound into an open circlet of soft silver, a smaller solid disk hanging from it. Max lowered the circlet over his head, resting it above his brow, and positioned the solid disk in front of his left eye. While the disk appeared solid, it was still massless and immaterial, and so passed smoothly through this truly solid form of the face mask that was also in front of Max's eye. Through the viewing disk, the castle appeared brighter and the water less distinct. The foundation and the submerged walls were clearly discernible ahead and below, and at their heart the dark pool of energy interwoven with the matrix of the rock. Fine black tendrils ran up through the castle, infiltrating the walls in internal airspace like nerves or branching capillaries. The image had the pulse of a heartbeat rhythm, shifting proportion and perspective amorphously with each regular surge. Beat. The castle went depth negative, reversing its dimensions, so that the side arcing toward Max seemed to suddenly embed itself in space and curve away. Beat. Side and front structures superimposed themselves, crowding each other in an irregular mapping. Beat. Shift change. Beat. Shift change. Unfortunately, this wasn't the information Max was looking to find out, since at the moment he was interested more in traps, and viewing things from the perspective of the second quantum level was quickly giving him a headache to boot. The near point of the castle was only fifty yards away, but that was apparently too far for such details as trap nodes. He could see one area of reasonable detail, though, the red smoke ring circling the topmost tower. Through the quantum lens, the red fireball was a spray of hot anthropomorphic shapes and mad field lines wound about with arching helices. Max didn't know whether that meant the death was calming down or getting ready to run amuck, or what, but the image certainly didn't look serene. Another thing he was looking to find that he hadn't been able to see either was the location of Roni and Carlini and the rest of their gang. Max flipped the lens up on its circlet and nosed over into the water. A wave came up behind him, lifting him as he paddled. Would it be high enough? It was. 
The wave broke against the curtain wall of the castle, but Max was riding it toward its peak. He slipped with the crest between two square crenellation stones, across a small lagoon covering an underwater courtyard, and washed up next to the interior wall facing onto the yard, just below a window. He pulled himself up on the sill, saw nothing inside, and rolled through. The floor was awash to ankle depth, but the room was empty. Max crossed it quickly, trying not to splash, positioned his lens again in front of his eye, eased open the door, and peeked out onto a flat landing off a circular staircase. The same sheet of shallow water covered the landing. A deeper pool hooded the descending stairs, large bubbles bursting on its surface. A low orange glow suffused up through the water from some unseen source below. In the vague light, Max's right eye made out the features of stair and stone resting quietly and apparently inert. His left eye could see the scene more distinctly through the lens, but the viewer revealed no sign of greater activity. He moved up the stairs. Through the lens, the stairs rippled and revolved, seeming to suddenly point down when he was still obviously going up, abruptly receding to a distance of miles and then popping back to sit atop his nose. He passed a room on his right. His right eye saw it as a simple sitting chamber, but his left added a churning blue disc hanging in the air at neck level. Additional rooms passed on the left. The staircase coiled tighter and steepened its pitch, and then the wall opened on the right into a level corridor. Max took a step toward the corridor and froze. The corridor was constricting about thirty feet ahead, drawing together from all four sides like a soft tube pinched around by fingers. His left eye saw it, and his right eye saw it, too. In the center of the constriction zone dangled a small kaleidoscopic vortex. Max spun back to the staircase and froze again. Something from below was following him rapidly up the stairs. Max backed warily upward. Give me a break already, he thought. I don't have the time to waste like this. He had to find Carlini. An orange glow spread up the stairs, strobing with the heartbeat rhythm of the castle. A distant tremor ran through the floor. Max glanced around, behind him, down... Down! He flung himself back, scrabbling convulsively upward as a twisted mass festooned with pincers and shining with a sick orange glare sprang up through the stone floor itself and spun toward him. Max flung a destabilizer at it, followed by a barrier disc. The disc folded twice along sudden orange creases and toppled, melting to the floor, while the destabilizer dart degraded into a pile of tiny leaves that hung fluttering in the air. The orange thing pulsed again and changed, gaining several long-stalked eyes with multiple pupils and a set of mobile jaws, and Max turned and ran full tilt away from it up the stairs. A turn and a half above, the staircase ended at a dead wall landing. A single doorway opened to one side. The construct was right behind him, now sporting a dragging tail and ventral fins. The walls around Max, as seen through the lens, were squirming with life, the veins of black energy in them throbbing with knots of slipping silver. Half a dozen veins had leapt out from the walls and were embedded in the orange construct, feeding its silver globs. That gave Max an idea. He backed through the door, trading maneuver room for time while his fingers wove in the air. He had entered a circular chamber twenty feet across with a peaked ceiling and several open windows, an observation turret slapped onto the side of the major tower. The orange creature shot after him, its pincers gnashing, but missed the doorway and plowed into the wall. That didn't stop it. With a grinding growl, a five-foot section of stone next to the door exploded into gravel and smoky dust, and the creature pushed its way into the room. 
The thing's half-dozen eyes turned to face him. It had been a long time since Max had worked this particular kind of transformation, and it was a complicated one to boot, but the technique was coming back. He pumped activation potential into the transmutation bridge. There, he had it. The air curdled behind the creature. A foot-long section of each dancing feeding tube turned gold, then yellow, then gray. The construct paused, three of its eyes whirling to peer around behind it and the tubes of energy began to stretch and fall toward the floor like wisps of smoke suddenly possessed of solid weight. That was, in fact, close to the truth. Max had gotten them with a solidification bridge that was warping mass into their immaterial matrix structure. Two of the veins cracked in mid-air and splintered. The creature was waving its pincers around, lights and refractive effects sparkling around them as it snapped off wards and counterfields, but the bridges had their contacts firmly bound, and with its power rapidly declining, the creature couldn't shake them. Its orange color faded toward a translucent yellow. Then the eyes wobbled up to peer at Max, and one of the hanging mouths broke into a nasty grin. The construct grabbed at the solidification bands, reversed its own polarity, and yanked. A wave of accretion poured along the feeding veins and burst through the construct in a surge of pulsing gray. The statue that had been the construct dropped toward the floor, its snarling mouth lagging in the air for an instant behind it, the whole assembly still gaining mass at an accelerated rate. Max began to lunge around it toward the door. The mass hit the stone floor weighing a ton or more. The floor cracked around it. A giant shudder shook the room as the cracks ran up into the walls. The floor canted abruptly outward, and with a final lurch and rumble, the entire room pulled free from the tower wall and started to fall. The doorway slid up and away, barely short of Max's fingers. He turned and vaulted across the room, hit floor and leapt again, sprang headfirst in a clean plunge through the window space opposite the doorway, and arched over in a long swan dive toward the water far below. Next, Chapter 20, The Dance of Death. <laughs>